name is Kate Abishan. My husband, Sam, and I have the privilege of leading the college and young adults ministry here. Um, And I am going to read our scripture this morning. We are in Luke 18, verses 9 through 30. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, see all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Thank you, Kate. We're going to do it, guys. We're going to get through that whole passage today. Oh, man. Um, I don't know how many of you guys this time of year get obsessed with the weather. You all know I do. Um, and so I've been interest, or in, intensely watching the potential for, you know, this ice storm that's going to come in tonight um, and whether or not school's going to be canceled tomorrow and this and that. Uh, There are lots of things in our world, in our lives, that are obstacles to the things we need to do, uh, and weather is one of them. Um, And as I was thinking through uh, obstacles that we encounter in life, I could not help but think about those poor Miami Dolphins last week who had to travel all the way from Miami with their quarterback from Hawaii to bitter cold Kansas City, Missouri. That cold was an obstacle for those Dolphins. Uh, and we are grateful uh, uh, for, for the weather being uh, in the Chiefs' advantage. They go to Buffalo today, and who knows what happens. Two cold-weather teams uh, facing each other's off. 
When we think about obstacles, though, we, we think about hard things are obstacles, right? Like uh, bad vision is an obstacle to becoming a pilot. We don't want pilots who can't see. Can I get an amen, right? Dyslexia is an obstacle to reading. Small bladders are an obstacle to a successful road trip, right? Uh, and, of course, a minus four temperature is an obstacle for the Miami Dolphins. So uh, what's interesting, though, is we seldom think about um, good things as obstacles. Like, we, we'll focus on the bad things as obstacles. We'll say, yeah, I mean, that's an obstacle. But good things can be obstacles as well. Uh, think about the smart kid, right? The one who's, like, really, really, really smart. Sometimes they're so smart that school's not a challenge to them and so they end up misbehaving and uh, not applying themselves in school and, and being so smart because they're undisciplined ends up being uh, a disadvantage. What about like height in the NBA? One of the tallest players to ever play was seven foot seven George Murasan. And he ended up having health issues and things like that because human beings aren't supposed to be that huge, right? Um, and I, I know this one personally. This one is really close to home. The obstacle of being so amazingly good-looking that it's distracting to everyone else. Don't laugh. Gosh, you guys are mean. Uh, no, you know what I'm talking about. If, if somebody is, it's definitely not me, somebody is so good-looking, they may struggle to get a date because all the regular people are intimidated by their beauty. Uh, definitely, definitely not my issue. Right? So basically what I'm getting at is so often we think about obstacles as being these really hard things, but there are good things that can be obstacles as well. So today as we go through that rather long passage that Kate read for us earlier, we're going to see two obstacles that feel a little, well, one of them we're like, yeah, we get it because we've been taught this our whole life. And the other one might seem a little bit of a surprise. Two obstacles to coming into the kingdom of God. And the first obstacle we're going to look at is good behavior. Good behavior can be an obstacle to coming to the kingdom of God. And second, we're going to see earthly wealth. Earthly wealth can be an obstacle to coming into the kingdom of God. So at first, at first look, these are good things, but these good things can get in the way of following Jesus. So I want you to think about, we're going to dive into this first one first, good behavior, and, and then we're going to get to wealth um, in just a second. But, but guys, in, I turned two pages of notes, didn't I? I didn't. We're fine. We're fine. So when we think about wealth, uh, we think about guys like uh, in the Bible who've received God's blessing. And it's easy to get wrapped up in, in uh, thinking, okay, were they, were they rich? And that's where the blessing came from because we can see it. It's external. It's this thing we recognize. Or were they, were they actually blessed by God and it manifested itself in wealth? So think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Job. All of these guys are, uh, all these guys are wealthy. And the, the question is, which came first, the blessing or the wealth? And I think that scripture is going to show us over time that really it's the blessing that came first and it manifests itself in wealth. So in our minds, a lot of times we see somebody who claims to follow Jesus, who claims to follow God, and we see this wealth that they have and we associate, even if we don't do it intentionally, we associate this idea that somehow their wealth is a sign of their closeness to God. And we have to be careful 
that we don't go around and, and assume that simply because somebody has a sign of something that we deem to be a blessing, uh, that they actually are close to God. Now, similarly, we think of good behavior as a good thing. We should behave in a certain way. We should follow the laws or the, the principles that are placed in Scripture. Like, we know how Christians ought to act. But what we got to be careful of is only judging somebody by what they show us on the outside. So, they, they, sure, they, they follow all the rules, they do all the right things, but what is the heart behind the person who is following all the rules? Uh, I know there are some people here that by personality type are rule followers. Just because I'm curious, anybody in here by personality type a rule follower? All right, so as a rule follower, it, it's your nature to do what's expected of you. And so really, at the end of the day, it's about you meeting expectations, not necessarily, not necessarily because of the work the Lord has done in your heart. So in both cases, when we have wealth, a, a physical blessing from the Lord, or when we have good behavior, it's easy for us to take the effect and make it the cause and say, because they have these out, outward signs, that must mean their heart is right. What we want, what Jesus shows us through this teaching today is, is he offers us this warning that wealth and good behavior do not necessarily equal right standing before God. Wealth and good behavior do not equal right standing before God. Now, of course, those of you who grew up in Baptist Sunday school know this to be true, Right? We know this. We've heard these stories. We know this. But we still fall into the trap of evaluating others and, frankly, ourselves by these outward standards. We know we shouldn't, but since we can only see what's on the outside, we can slide right into these bad habits. Now, on the heels of Jesus instructing his followers to always pray and not lose heart as they face trials and suffering because of being united with Jesus, we see an interesting contrast. So last week we saw that Jesus says we need to move forward with persistence and endurance as we suffer for the gospel. Today he says wealth and good deeds may be harder on our spiritual condition than what we experienced in persecution. Isn't that fascinating? So, so think about that for a second. Last week, as we looked at persevering and enduring through suffering, we see that, that these hardships that we go through, that we've all the way back into chapter 17, these hardships that we go through may actually force us to greater dependence on God. Now we look here at these next two sections and we see an emphasis on outward behavior and wealth. What's liable to be absent if we are suffering for the gospel? Well, first off, things like church attendance and uh, other uh, encouraging believers and things of that sort, uh, principles that we think are vital to Christian life, the rest of the world may see as bad behavior. They may see that as the wrong thing to do. 
And any wealth that we may have uh, during persecution may be taken away. So what I think is interesting here is Jesus, right after, right after he talks about persevering, right after he talks about suffering, he talks about the dangers of being approved of by men and having wealth. That these very things that we may think we want and need to be looked at as being ones with good behavior and the comfort of wealth may actually be hard on our spiritual condition. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, it's better for your spiritual condition to suffer. Could we get a more contrasting message to the American gospel than that? We're told over and over again, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you get everything you want, God must be blessing you. If everybody approves of you, God must be blessing you. And yet here we have two stories where wealth is an obstacle to the kingdom and good behavior, the approval of others, may be an obstacle to the kingdom as well. Let's go ahead and uh, dive into our passage today. We're going to start by looking at this parable uh, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is the first obstacle to the kingdom. Good behavior can be an obstacle to the kingdom. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus gives us a very helpful contrast as he uh, unpacks this parable for us. There is a Pharisee and there is a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee is presented as some kind of pompous, self-righteous jerk, and the tax collector is presented as a humble and broken man. Now, how else does Jesus contrast these two men, and how does that contrast help emphasize the obstacle of good behavior? I think what we have to do is look at the obvious social station of these two men. All right? So, one... Has, this is the Pharisee. He has a social status associated with righteousness and closeness to God. If you just looked at him walking down the street, you would say, there goes a righteous man, just by nature of his station in life. The other, the tax collector, is seen as a traitor. He's a cheat and a thief and an overall bad guy. 
So when we look at them from the outside, the obvious condition of the heart of each of these men should be easy for any good Jew to understand just by their job title. Pharisee, good guy, tax collector, bad guy. Obvious, outside, we should be able to see it. But Jesus takes the expectations of each man's social status as an opportunity to flip the conclusion. The guy who behaves well is not a good guy. But the guy who is clearly a sinner has been declared justified. Notice I didn't say he was a good guy. He's been declared justified. Now, Jesus never contradicts the hypothetical behavior of this pretend Pharisee. He never contradicts it. We don't see as Jesus unpacks the parable that the Pharisee was actually an adulterer. He extorted people all the time. He never uh, contradicts the fact that he's not actually a tither. Jesus seems to accept this man's claims as fact. This guy is living a, quote-unquote, good life. His behaviors are good. This is the kind of person that Jesus' audience was supposed to relate to. He's a good Jew. He goes above and beyond to show himself to be a moral and upstanding person. He has the approval of others based on his outward actions. But let's not forget how the people that Jesus was talking to were described in verse 9. So if you still have your Bibles open, look at at verse 9. It says, Luke says that these people trusted in themselves. They considered themselves to be righteous. And they treated others with contempt. So this introduction to his audience lets us know that good behavior is not the issue. Jesus and just about all the New Testament writers stress the importance of righteous living. So it is important, it is important to to follow Jesus in our behavior. But the issue here is what we put our trust in. Luke tells us in verse 9 that these people were trusting in their own work to be right before God. Where was their heart? Where was their trust? Their trust was in their own behavior. Then Jesus uses the extreme example of a tax collector to stress the point that what we trust in is what truly matters most. The tax collector is broken over his sin. He beats his chest. He cries out to God for what, church? Mercy. He cries out to God for mercy. So what is he trusting in? Is he trusting in his own work? Is he trying to garner the approval of others in this moment? Is he trying to look good? No, he stands far away. He beats his chest in grief over his actions, and he calls out for mercy. He is trusting in mercy to be justified before God. So who leaves justified? Is it the one who cries out for mercy or the one who rests in their own strength? Do you see how good behavior can be an obstacle to the kingdom? Good behavior may make us think that we don't need mercy. But is this guy's mercy ever going to be enough to measure up to God's standard of holiness? What did we just sing? 
that we're going to be calling out holy. The angels cry, holy. Who does this Pharisee think he is that he can stand on his own merit before a holy God? What does Romans 3 tell us? That there is no one righteous, not even one. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector need God's mercy. Now, you know what one of my kids said as I was talking to them about this parable this week? My kid, one of my children said, so does that mean we get to just go on sinning? And I said, oh, thankfully, Paul addresses this in Romans 6. Should we go on sinning so that grace, or, uh, so that grace may abound? By no means. Right? What it is is, is your motivation. What, what's driving us? What's driving us? Are we changing our behavior in order to stand before God in our own merit? Or are we clinging to his mercy and then out of our love and dependence on him, we obey and do what he says? You see, we don't do good things and end up right before God. But because we have received his mercy, because we have received his grace, and because we love him, we want to be like him. We want to live the way he's called us to live. Our behavior changes because of what he has done. There's this temptation. There's this temptation we have, though, of relying on our own behavior. Gosh, this, this is something I know I struggle with. That I can begin to think I'm a, I'm, I'm a good guy. And somehow along the way, because my behavior has changed, I, I can do something in, in my heart. And I don't even mean to. I don't even mean to. I can begin to think I received mercy, but now I deserve it. I've actually earned this mercy. I'm, I'm good. Right? I've earned it. It's mine. I have claim to it. And the second we enter that frame of mind where I have earned this, where I deserve this, then people who don't measure up to your standard of good behavior haven't earned the mercy of God. I just want you to say that sentence in your mind out loud. They haven't earned the mercy of God. Is that not the dumbest sentence in the world? It ceases to be mercy and grace the second you earn it. And there's this trick we do in our head that we know we're saved by grace and, and God's mercy. But somehow, after a life of following Jesus for many years, we can begin to get stupid. And in our brain, we can think, this is mine now. I've earned it. And so with that comes contempt on those who have not yet earned it. And we forget that the only thing that separates the Pharisee and his good behavior from the tax collector is the mercy of God. And interestingly enough, Jesus presents this in such a way that the one who has received mercy is the one with bad behavior, not the one with good behavior. You see, our good behavior can be an obstacle to following Jesus, can be an obstacle to entering the kingdom of God if we think, if we think that we enter the kingdom of God by our good behavior.
Good behavior comes from following Jesus. Good behavior is not how we receive mercy. All right, let's go ahead and look at the second obstacle to entering the kingdom of God, that is earthly wealth. Now, I think this one feels a little bit more accessible. We've been taught this our whole life. Um, But let's go ahead and and dive in here and see if we can uh, see a little bit of a bigger picture of how how Luke applies this. Let's look at um, Luke 18, 18 through 30. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now listen, whole sermon series have been preached on this one uh, encounter. Like I I could turn this into a four-parter. And it's point two of the message today. So what that means is we're going to skip over some stuff, all right? We're going to kind of fly over it. We can't cover every little detail of it. But I do want you to see the big concept of what's going on here. The first thing I want you to look at is the question that the ruler asks. What's he ask? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, much could be said about the word do. What I want to say today is it's simply a callback to the first obstacle that we already discussed. There is a base belief in many people that our right standing before God is established in doing something the right way. It becomes a works-based motivation. So, here's what Jesus does. He gives this guy a list of commandments. And the guy says, yeah, I've done all that. And you know what I love about Jesus? He, he, he could easily have uh, taken a little side note here and, and taught some of the things from the Sermon on the Mount, which basically proves even if we've sinned in our heart, we've still committed the sin. And Jesus could make this guy look very foolish. But he doesn't do that. He takes this guy at his word, and he says, okay, you've said you've done all these things. You've said you followed the law. Fine. One thing you still lack. And this is, this is important because he's saying, all right, let's forget about behavior and let's go to the heart. He says, sell everything you have. Give to the poor and come and follow me. 
Jesus gives him something else to do that he knew this guy wouldn't do. I, I think this is interesting because this is the very thing that he had asked the other disciples to do. We're, we, we aren't told that the other disciples sold everything they had to follow him, but Luke chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 5, verse 28, use the same kind of language to show us that Peter, and also probably his brother Andrew, and definitely James and John, are, are named. The three of them are named, and Peter's implied, I'm sorry, Andrew's implied, that they left everything to follow him. Then if you look over to verse 28, you have the story of Levi, which I believe is Matthew, and you have Matthew who left everything to follow him. We have this example of the disciples leaving everything to follow Jesus. The thing is, these guys didn't leave very much, right? They were, they were poor fishermen. I mean, you can make the case that maybe Levi had some money, but this rich ruler is said to be extremely rich. So maybe, maybe Levi had a good job. Maybe Matthew had a good job. The other guys were poor. They, they probably had enough money to survive for a couple of days. If they were really good at their work, maybe a couple of weeks. This was a, 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 a class of people who made enough money for today to eat that day. Like they, they were living day to day. So to have to leave everything to follow Jesus, it wouldn't take that long to get back to the same standard of living they had before they left everything to follow Jesus. When it comes to this rich man, he actually had to give up something. He actually had to give up something. Now, now here's the thing that he had to give up. His independence. He had to give up his independence. Think about what wealth does for us. It makes us self-sufficient, self-reliant. You know who doesn't need miracles? People who can afford doctors. Think about that for a second. You know who needs miracles? The desperate. And what do we see here? Jesus says it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, man, pages have been written over what on earth Jesus means. And I don't think it matters. What's the point? It's really, really hard. This is a big deal. Wealth is an obstacle, just like size for a camel is an obstacle when it comes to going through the eye of a needle. This is a challenging thing. Our wealth, now, and again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but in our 21st century American minds, as, like, they didn't have middle class back then. So, so for us, like, our brain tells us we're not rich, so we immediately think we're with the poor because we know we're not rich, but really, we're rich compared to the poor that they had then. So even though our brain tells us, well, we're really poor, we're really rich. And our cultural environment and the things we're able to provide for ourselves make us feel like 
we can be independent from God. Because we have a shelter over our head. We have food in our cupboards. We have meat in our freezers. So we think we are okay. That independence from the Lord is rooted in a belief that our wealth can really meet our needs. And because it can meet our physical needs, and we can get a little fat and happy, I think, I think we lose track of the value of our spiritual need. Because we're so comfortable in our humanity, we lose sight of what really matters eternally. Look at how Jesus concludes this section. He says in verse 29 and 30, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time. Now what I think is interesting there is this word, this phrase in this time. What's, what's he mean there? Does he mean an actual, like, cash blessing? Is this talking about naming it and claiming it? If we leave it all, we'll get it all back. We sow a seed for the future, right? That's not what this is talking about at all. Uh, it's talking about a re reprioritizing what it is that God truly values. And in the end, you're a part of the kingdom of God in eternity, and you're a part of the kingdom of God here on earth right now. If you lose your brothers and sisters, will we not receive many more? Look around. Look around. This is the family of God. As, as following Jesus may cost us earthly blessing, there is a kingdom of God that we live in in this world right now. And it's not based in the value system that our world is, operates in. It's based in a value system that is eternally focused. So it may not mean, it may not mean you won't suffer. It may not mean you have the cattle on a thousand hills. It, it may just mean you have a body of believers to walk through hard times with. It may mean that when, what's it say in, uh, in uh, Ecclesiastes? That when one falls, there's the other there to pick them up. But what's it say? And in the age to come, eternal life. That's the ultimate hope. That's what we've been talking about all through chapter 17, right? That all of this, we are supposed, how can we move forward with this way of thinking? Because our mind is set on eternity. Our mind is set on the age to come. And so we don't have to value the things of this world. Our, uh, if we are focused on the kingdom, and we are focused on his value system, then the obstacle of good behavior, because we cannot justify ourselves before God by what we do, and the obstacle of wealth, because we know we can't provide for ourselves eternally, are, are secondary. What he's calling us to is a life that is fully dependent on him. These obstacles of good behavior and wealth are obstacles because they move us toward independence from God but he is calling us toward dependence on him. And as we depend on him, he changes 
our values. I want you guys to think about your relationships for just a second. If you don't have children, to your relationship with your parents. If you do have children, to your relationship with your children. Now, my kids are younger, but my kids don't need a job. My kids don't need to own their own home. My kids don't need to own a car. My kids don't need a dime of money. Why? Because their mother and I provide all that they need. They use my money when they need to buy something. They live in my house. I drive them around. Amen? Woo. They eat my food. My kids are 100% dependent on me. Now, the goal is to make my kids less and less dependent. Amen? Right? But our spiritual goal is to be more and more dependent on God. Physical wealth and self-righteous behavior are obstacles to that kind of dependence on God. Now, right between these two stories, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee and the account of the rich ruler, we have this account, this passage right here in between the two, Luke 18, it, uh, verse 15 and following says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Why like children? Why like children? In their day and age, children didn't offer much value until they were productive. It was another mouth to feed. I'm being a little blunt and maybe crass. They were parasites, just living off their parents, taking what they needed so that they could survive. These kids just take and take and take. And just when you think you've given all you can, what do they do? They take some more, right? But we love those little critters, don't we? I mean, we love them. We would die for them. We would sacrifice for them. And most of the time, most of the time, barring any prolonged seasons of entitlement or ungratefulness, most of the time, we are glad they keep coming back to us and taking more. We want them to know they can come back to us. We want them to come to us. When we are in a good place emotionally and spiritually, it is our delight to provide for our kids. And I believe my relationship with my children is better because they are dependent on me. Now, my hope, my hope is that someday all four girls will move out of my house and be independent. And I kind of look forward to it, right? But as I look forward to those days, I want to cherish the season of dependence. Listen, this is the season that Elise and I get to teach them they can count on us. Every day we get to show them we love them by getting up and going to work 
and earning a paycheck so that we can meet their needs. When we do chores around the house, we show them that we care about their comfort and even their hygiene, right? We care for them when they're sick. And when we care for them when they're sick, we show them compassion and action. And when we discipline them for something that they they did wrong, we have the privilege of teaching them what right and wrong is. Without a parent or someone filling the role of a parent, how would a child ever be ready for independence? Now, I want you to think about a baby. What happens to an independent baby? An independent baby won't make it. There is value in dependence. That's how we make it. What does Jesus say? Let the children come to me. You can't come into the kingdom unless you come like one of these. Totally dependent on the king. And he gives us this example of what happens when we trust in our own behavior to enter the kingdom. Who left justified? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Not the one who trusted in their works, but the one who cried out for mercy. We have the example of the rich ruler who who wasn't willing to forsake his independence to follow Jesus. And that's contrasted against the disciples who left everything to follow him. Why couldn't the rich guy leave? He had a whole lot more to leave than Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Sometimes our wealth and our comfort can be an obstacle to the kingdom of God if it makes us independent from the kingdom of God. What does Jesus want for us as we follow him? He wants us to be totally dependent, just like little children. But I can't help but think about the stubborn teenager who thinks they're ready for the real world, right? They say, Mom, I can take care of myself. As you remind them to take a shower and to take their research project with them to school because they're going to leave it at home. Or they ask you for 20 bucks to to buy something they need, but they say, I can take care of myself. Or they say, Dad, I know how to do it. And then they shrink your favorite shirt in the laundry, right? Now, that's actually never happened, but you guys know what I'm talking about, okay? Are we not the same, though? Do we not say to God, I know how to do it. I know what I'm doing. Leave me alone. Oh, my goodness, we are such little teenagers. (laughs) Sorry, kids. Uh, Because we think we can do it on our own. But the good news is, we don't have to. And he doesn't want us to. And teenagers, I, I want to challenge you with this. Your parents on a good day, they don't want you to do it on your own either. Your relationship with them is better if you need them appropriately within the rules of the home, okay? 
We all have responsibilities. We all have things we need to do. But that dependence on us parents is an opportunity to meet your kids where they are. It's a chance to love them, to teach them, and to guide them. And if you don't believe me, look at how the Father tells us to come to him like children. So as we close the the message today, I want you to evaluate these obstacles in your life. How are you depending on your own behavior to justify yourself before God? Do you constantly find yourself evaluating your behavior to see if you measure up? Do you know that assuming that you're never going to to be enough is actually the same sin as the Pharisee? Think about that for a second. There's two ways that emphasizing your behavior is a problem. God, I'm so good, I don't need your mercy. That's the Pharisee. The other side of the equation is, I'm so bad, you're never going to give me your mercy. Both positions devalue the power of God's mercy. Where are you in evaluating your behavior? Do you see yourself as in need, and do you trust that he is able to meet that need? What's your measure of uh, dependence on the Lord? I know for me, I find myself saying, I can do it. I know how to do it. Man, I relate so much to that illustration of the teenager. I can do it. I can make this happen. And I even know what to do to make it work. But is the goal to make it work, or is the goal to follow Jesus? Is the goal to make it work, or is the goal to follow Jesus? I know that for me, sometimes I need that priority change. I want my goal to be following Jesus because he may have a plan that is far less practical than what I might assume. And I'd rather follow him than follow myself. I don't know what I might miss out on because I'd rather do it my way than do it his way. My way might work, but it might not be the best. How dependent are you on him? Have you found yourself trusting not only in your own abilities, but resting in your, what, you've, what you've accumulated? Have you found yourself saying, I don't actually pray for things. I don't ask God for miracles because I know how to make it happen. I don't, I don't ask God to work in my heart because I'm so conditioned to just provide for myself. My question to you is, where do you need to say, I've got to stop trying to provide for myself and be more dependent on the Lord? So as the praise team comes and we have our chance to respond to the message, the altar is open. This is our chance to just say, Lord, I need you. I'm dependent on you. As they come, my my mind goes back to the, to the, uh, the, the widow that we read about last week. She was unable to meet her need. And in her desperation, she went to the judge over and over and over again. And eventually the judge met her need. As as Jesus ends that portion of his teaching, he says, 
Will the Son of Man find such faith when he returns? What's her faith? Total dependence. She is unable to meet her own need. She was totally dependent on something outside of herself. My question to you is this. Where's your faith? Do you believe that he can meet your great need? Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the way you love us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Help us to remember how much we need it. Help us to be dependent on it. Help us to to not think we are so unworthy, your grace can't do the work. And help us not to think we're so righteous, we don't need your grace. Help us, Lord, to see our need and to receive it and to believe and trust that you are able. It's in your name we pray. Amen.